Hi, my name is Nina Bosky, and I'm the host of a special investigation series of Maryland Behind the Icon during the 60th anniversary of the star's death, where we'll look into the mystery and break down for you, the audience, of what the facts are versus the lies around the star that have been plaguing her for over six decades. We have some of the top Maryland experts with me on the panel. Gary Vitaco Robles, icon, lifetimes in films of Marilyn Monroe, and April Via Via, now Chambers, Marilyn Monroe, A Day in the Life, and Donald McGovern, Murder Orthodoxies, a non-conspiracy view of Marilyn Monroe's death. Each week, we will break down for you what is fact, what is probable theory, and what is outlandish rumor. So with me back in the studios, Gary Vitaco Robles. He is the author of Icon, Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. He has a new book coming out. It's volume three, and it's all around Marilyn's last day. And we're breaking down the facts for you. So we left off last week around Peter Lawford's calls, his frantic calls, and everybody playing telephone trying to figure out what's happening with Marilyn. But where we want to start this week is Marilyn's nightly routine. And a lot of people don't know this. So Gary, take it away. So Eunice Murray, in her memoir and in other interviews that she did, was very specific about Marilyn's nightly routine to sleep. Marilyn suffered from insomnia. She had difficulty sleeping. She had a mood disorder. She had a routine of creating total darkness in her bedroom. And she had a nightly routine of putting her telephones to bed. Now, this might be a little complex for our younger audience members to understand in the era of cell phones. But in Marilyn's era, telephones were plugged into the wall. And in Marilyn's case, she liked to move around the house with her phones. And so she had phones on very, very long cords. And they could be unplugged and put in a jack and a wall in one room and unplugged. She could move around from one room to the next without even unplugging it. And so she would take both of her telephones and plug them into a spare bedroom and cover them with pillows. So if they rang during the night, her sleep would not be disturbed. And so let me just describe the layout of Marilyn's house. She slept in a master bedroom that had an ensuite bath attached to it. There was a bedroom adjacent to hers, which shared a common wall. And that's the one in which she would place the telephones. And then that bedroom was connected to yet a third bedroom across the hall. But you could access the third bedroom across the hall through the Jack and Jill bathroom that connected the two other bedrooms. So Marilyn's bedroom has its own bath. These other two bedrooms share a connecting bath. Mrs. Murray is sleeping in the bedroom across the hall. So she could go into that other bedroom and access the phones without coming into the hallway. She could access it through going through the Jack and Jill bathroom. And so that is what she did that night when Milton Rudin called her. She went through the bathroom to get to that other bedroom to take that call. Now, she says that she went to sleep afterwards and woke up around 12 o'clock and went into the hallway to check on Marilyn because Marilyn did not complete her nightly routine. She didn't put her phone to bed. 
one of the phones was in that other bedroom, but not the one Marilyn had taken into her bedroom. That is the one that Peter Lawford reached her on. That's the one that she likely used well, to reach me, out to Ralph Roberts me, answering service. You, doesn't that seem a little like raise a flag with Eunice Murray and the fact that she didn't do her nightly routine and what is she doing up at midnight? Well, she doesn't tell us much, uh, but she's vigilant and she's monitoring Marilyn. And we also know that Marilyn was very agitated that day. And she was very agitated with Patricia Newcomb, who was told to leave so that things would calm down. And I believe that she was possibly walking on eggshells. And so the light is burning in Monroe's bedroom. There's a telephone cord underneath her door. She has three windows in the bedroom, two windows face the side of the house, and they don't have iron bars over them. One window facing the front of the house, that window is open. And for security purposes, that one is open because it has an ornamental grating, which still provides security protection. So the window is open, the draperies are drawn, the lights are on, and there's a phone in Monroe's room. So clearly Monroe was not prepared to sleep. And that is very crucial in this case, especially for those who think that maybe Marilyn took an accidental overdose. If she took an accidental overdose, I would think that she had prepared for sleep. She had taken a dosage, maybe miscalculated the dosage or woke up and repeated a dosage. Of course, the pathology doesn't say that, but many people believe that. And here's the thing though, and this is really the real challenge too, is if she started taking pills earlier in the day when Dr. Greenson saw her, right? And she's already taking drugs. And then she took a few more and then took a few more. And then all of a sudden took a few more. Would it be safe to say that she could almost forget that she took them? Well, the pathology doesn't indicate that. The pathology says that she took a massive overdose within a short amount of time. And that's how it metabolized in her body, in her liver. So if she had spaced it out, I'm not a medical expert, so I don't know how many hours it would need to be spaced out, but still she took approximately 47 Nembatol and 17 chloral hydrate. That's 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 a tremendous amount of medication. Nembatol is prescribed to her one pill. Yeah, so here's the thing. So describe for people, because they don't get this, they, a lot of people have misconceptions about suicide and especially suicide when somebody has an acute mental illness. And I think this is really important for people to understand how people with acute mental illness could take their life. So explain that for people. Well, it's about impulsivity. In Marilyn's case, there was more than just bipolar disorder going on. You know, she was a survivor of childhood trauma. And with childhood trauma, sometimes there's personality issues. Now, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, did Marilyn Monroe have borderline personality disorder? I can't tell you for sure that she did, but I could tell you that she had many characteristics of of someone with um, borderline personality disorder. If she, you know, did she have them all to meet the criteria for a diagnosis? I can't tell you that, but she had features of borderline personality disorder. And sometimes with that disorder, people tell me, that they experience extremely excruciating emotional pain. And when they're in emotional pain, they just want that pain to end. And they often think about 
ending their lives as a way to, in that moment, stop the intensity of that pain that's just unavoidable. And Marsha Linehan, who does a lot of research on borderline personality disorder, she talks even about um, people with a fourth stage cancer who are in great pain and they they're in physical pain and they sometimes have that same desire to end the physical pain in that moment and might, um, uh, you know, and, and, and their lives in, in an impulsive manner. And so, you know, the, the theories about suicide many years ago was that it was a very rational, calculated decision you know, that people planned it and gave away their things and, and very rationally um, decided that they were going to end their life. Well, th that's not really what happens. Usually suicide is a manifestation of a mental illness. And with the mental illness, there's disorganized thoughts. There's maybe psychosis. There's, you know, uh, yeah. abrupt changes in mood there's just there's it's so complicated and the behaviors are not rational they're well, more I, impulsive wanna, yeah and i also want to just reiterate again because if you're listening to last week's episode and you've been hearing us she didn't have a lot in her system in terms of food she had been taking drugs for at least the latter part of the day she didn't have sleep and the other thing is is i just want to just clear for the record she was not drinking that day she did not have a drop of alcohol so here you have somebody that we now know has now passed away and this is where it gets very murky and this is also where you know now everybody's waking up to the fact that marilyn monroe has passed away and this is where all the challenge comes in like the ambulance, you know, the Schaefer ambulance theory. So tell us a little bit about that, Gary, and why that's not true. Oh, that Schaefer ambulance theory, that comes from a man by the name of James Hall. And in 1982, he did uh, an interview for The Globe on the anniversary of Monroe's death, the 20th anniversary. And he claimed that uh, he was called to Monroe's house while she was still alive, and he was resuscitating her and that a man who was described as a doctor came in with a black doctor's bag and pulled a hypodermic needle out of it and plunged it into her sternum and injected a solution, and she expired as a result of that injection. And so when that story was breaking, the uh, Los Angeles District Attorney's Office was already investigating uh, Monroe's death due to all the criticism about how the case was handled and all of these theories that were brought forth by men like Robert Slatzer and Milo Spiriglio. And so he actually, James Hall approached the district attorney's office under a pseudonym, Rick Stone. And so they interviewed him and they, well, they attempted to interview him. The story is very convoluted, but he was looking for money is what he was looking for. And so they did some really good research. They found out who worked on the shifts at the Schaefer Ambulance Company. They interviewed all of these gentlemen who were still alive, one of them being Ken Hunter. So Ken Hunter did an interview with them, and he said that, yes, an ambulance was called out. And it's likely when they call the police to report that Monroe was death, it's customary to send out a paramedic. And so Hunter says that they arrived and they found Monroe on her side. And that she had been dead. She was dead for a long time. Her body was discolored already. There was lividity that was fixed. And that's the settling of blood to the lowest part of the body. She was dead for some time. And it was quite evident to Dr. Greenson when he broke into the room and approached the body. He knew 
that she was dead. She looked dead from a distance. And if you, you can listen to Ken Hunter's interview on YouTube. Now, interestingly, Anthony Summers included some of that interview in his recent documentary, but he edited it. He makes it sound like Ken Hunter finds her alive. That's because he stops when Ken Hunter says, well, I found her on her side. Then he edits it out and you don't hear. And she was dead and had been dead for some time. And then he goes on to say that James Hall's account is, in his words, I'm not going to say the whole word, but he says it's BS. The ambulance theory and what we know to be a fact is not substantiated. It's total rumor based on if you go and you read the DA report, you're going to see it all in there. If you listen to the other partner in that, it doesn't make a lot of sense given the timeline as well. Because in the middle of the night, if they actually came, which is what was actually told in a lot of the rumors early on, Gary, she's already gone. She's already passed. So this can't be true. Is there any other theories we have to uncover before we get to the fact that the doctors are called now? Well, I think we really need to provide some medical evidence that disputes the ambulance theory. That is the fact that, you know, not only was Monroe dead for a significant amount of time and rigor mortis came in, because people will argue that and say, well, that all happened after her body was deposited back at the home. But if she were in ambulance and died, the lividity of her body would have settled to her back. And if they had brought her back to the home and placed her on her stomach, there would have been a secondary lividity which would have then accumulated on her front. So with lividity, you can see the primary position that the person died in, and then the secondary position that their body was placed in. And so for Monroe, we know clearly she died on her stomach. And then when she was placed on her back, there would have been a secondary lividity. But at that point, you know, this is very graphic and I'm sorry to say it, but you know, the blood coagulates, there's already discoloration to the skin. Medically, this is common knowledge. And if a hypodermic needle was plunged through her breastbone and into her heart, those injuries would have been very clear in the autopsy. And an injection of a drug would have been metabolized very differently than an oral ingestion and absorption of the drug. And so in Monroe's case, the medical evidence shows that she completely metabolized the drugs and there was a high concentration of the drugs in her liver. If she had died by an injection, it would have been the opposite. Her blood would have had the higher level and the liver would have had the lower level. And it's quite common for oral ingestions to be completely absorbed. That's why people die. People with a lay understanding of drugs and um, the digestive system say that we should have found the drugs in her body. Well, drugs are not food. Drugs are meant to break down very quickly so that they work. And I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, a sleeping pill, you know, you'd have to take it at three o'clock in the afternoon if it's going to lay in your stomach and dissolve if you want to get to sleep by nine o'clock. It's made to absorb very quickly. The gelatin breaks down. It gets into the bloodstream. It's going to pass through. According to the medical experts, being Cyril Weck, who we interviewed, And uh, Stephen Boyd, who the L.A. District Attorney's Office interviewed in 82, were all in agreement that Monroe's 
death followed what is typical of an oral overdose. Breathing becomes shallow, the heart is not pumping fully, and there's backflow, there's no longer the circulation. And so the person goes into a stuporous state, but their body is still alive and continues to absorb the, the medicine and break down the pills. So she lingered probably for a long period of time in coma. This is what we're told by the medical experts. This is all really important information for people to understand because you want to put just quick little antidotes and it's complex. When you really fully understand it, it makes a lot more sense that basically Marilyn Monroe overdosed. Even Anthony Summers in his documentary, he says it only in one scene, but he does say it. I think she overdosed or committed suicide. And so it's really sensationalized in terms of the sizzle to say that she was murdered, but the facts are not adding up. So let's move then to the doctors are now called because they now know Marilyn Monroe has passed away. So let's go back to Eunice Murray wakes up at 12 o'clock. Tell us what happens. This is what's often been referred to as the changing account of Eunice Murray, that at first the body was discovered at midnight, but then the official account is that the body was discovered at 3.30. And so over the years, her memory might have been clouded. But if you go back to the original police report, she does say that she observed the light on and went to the door and was unable to arouse her. So at 12 o'clock, something strikes her as odd that Monroe hasn't done her nightly routine and turned off the light and gone to bed. And so she doesn't, she's not alarmed enough to take any action, but she's clearly continuing to monitor her charge. And so she doesn't sleep soundly. She gets up again, and now it's 3.30, and now she's really alarmed. And so that is when she calls Dr. Greenson, and he tells her to bang on the door, which she does, and there's no response. And then he tells her to go outside and look through the window and um, report back what she sees. And so she goes to the front of the house and the, this is the window that's opened, but the drapes are closed and there's an ornamental grating and a very deep sill. So Murray has to use the poker from the fireplace to reach through the grating and through the deep sill to pull back the curtain. She sees the, of course, the lights burning and Monroe is in what she calls an unnatural position. So there was already probably, you know, her noticing of the discoloration and the rigidity of the body. And so she goes back to the phone and tells Dr. Greenson this and he um, gets ready. And his daughter tells us that she was awoken in the middle of the night by the phone call. Her father got dressed and went out and she heard the car start and him drive away. So he comes to the house and meets Mrs. Murray there. And he goes to the side of the house. The door is locked from the inside. He goes to the side of the house where there's two windows, casement windows that are kind of low to the ground and they're not covered by grating. And he breaks the glass with the fire poker so that he can unlatch it and very easily step inside. And when he does, you know, he finds Monroe clearly dead and he unlocks the door so Mrs. Murray can enter the room. Greenson opens the door and uh, tells Mrs. Murray standing in the hallway that Monroe is gone. And so next, there is a phone call to Hyman Engelberg. Engelberg told the L.A. district attorney that 
he was called. He couldn't remember who was the caller, if it was Greenson or Murray. He left his residence and drove over to the home. And he was the one who officially pronounced her dead using a stethoscope. So they now pronounce her dead. And what time of the night is this? Engelberg approximately would have pronounced her dead around maybe 10 minutes to four. If you think Greenson got there by um, a quarter to, um, you know, we're closing in now on, on close to four o'clock. The call to the police is at 425. But remember, Eunice Murray first is, is alerted to Monroe being in distress at 330. So it's so really less than an hour that the police are called. It is less than an hour. After the doctors call the police, who arrives at the scene? Clemens receives the phone call at the West LA Police Department, and he comes to the scene with another patrol car with two other officers. So there were three of them who entered the home at probably about 4.40. Byron uh, was the officer who took control of the investigation at around five o'clock. So Clemens has always described himself as the first responding officer and the only officer. But according to the police records, there were two others on the scene at the same time who did not express the same concerns that Clemens later did many, many years later. So- and so Byron conducted the interviews and investigated the case. For those of you who have not heard the Jack Clemens episode early on in the special investigation, it is important that you go ahead and listen to that. That gives you the firsthand account of the rumor mill starting to begin way back when. So with that said, Gary, where's um, Patricia Newcomb in all this? When is she called? She's contacted around 4.30. Um, she was asleep at home in her apartment on Cannon Drive. Patricia Newcomb told the L.A. District Attorney that she was contacted at around four o'clock on August 5th by Milton Rudin, um, who told her that Monroe had overdosed and died and that you'd better get over here. It is possible that maybe Milton Rudin came to the home uh, and then left. He is photographed, uh, I believe, at the home um, later that morning by the press. So she was notified earlier than the police were called but I believe she arrived after the police were already on the site. Given this is the last day of Marilyn Monroe's life, you have the facts as we know them. Is there anything else you'd like to share as we finish up the last day of Marilyn Monroe's life, Gary? I was able to review Joan Greenson's unpublished memoir from the Ralph Greenson papers that are now sequestered, I believe, until 2039. And um, it's very interesting. I mean, this is Dr. Greenson's young adult daughter who was spending the night at his home when he rushed off and found Marilyn deceased. And this is what she says. We begin to see how the breaks really went against him, meaning my father, and against Marilyn. Father had a policy that if Marilyn wanted to have sleep medication, that all she had to do was call her doctor and he would prescribe it. Then the physician was to call him later and tell him that she had a new sleeping medication and what the name of it was and how much was in it. 
If father felt that it was an excessive amount or too dangerous, he would usually pour some out when he was at Marilyn's house. This way he knew what medications she had access to, and he didn't run into the problem of her calling many different doctors and getting all kinds of different medications where we, he would have absolutely no control. But he always made it a habit when he was at her house to check the bedside table for different or new medication bottles to see what was there. That Saturday, he had checked her medication. No new pills were there. He had not received a call that she had gotten new medication. It was a small oversight. Unfortunately, the pills that Marilyn had gotten were in another room where her friend had used them so that she could get a good night's sleep, which she had, which had upset Marilyn because she did not sleep well that night. Another oversight had been that Marilyn had apparently been phoning friends in a very druggy state. They had felt, why bother the doctor? He needed a night off. It's strange. There were so many what ifs or could have beens, and it all could have meant the difference between life and death. But that can only be speculation. And there you have it. Marilyn Monroe's last day, still left in speculation, but we know a lot more than we did even five or six years ago. We can say without a doubt that Marilyn's doctors had a role in her death. Something more nefarious at this point, it's only speculation. The facts are the facts. There are some theories and there's certainly some outlandish rumors, but now you get to begin to connect the dots for yourself. So you know that Marilyn Monroe wasn't just a famous movie star, but she was a human being. And her last day, most of it was quite ordinary until the last hours of her life. But she's complex just like all of us. And she had an acute mental illness. And so Gary Vitaco Robles, I wanna thank you for all of the wonderful research you have done and the rest of the panel over the years, because we have done our best not to sensationalize this story, but to tell you the facts as we know them. So that this way, you might be suspending your belief system. For somebody who started out thinking that she was murdered, I have changed my mind, my belief system, not because I just wanna change it, but because the facts don't support the fact that she was murdered. The facts do not support it. Unless you have facts and you'd like to bring them forward, we would be happy to explore them. But as we know it, we have told you today that Marilyn Monroe most likely overdosed or committed suicide due to an acute mental illness and depression. Thank you, Gary Vitaka Robles and the entire Goodnight Maryland panel, as well as Donald McGovern and April Via Via, now Chambers, your years of research. As we say at the end of this investigation series, I'm Nina Bosky, the truth will be known.